Well, welcome to our latest generation podcast. It's great to be back with you. Um, we've been off air for a few weeks. Um, I've been over in the USA. I was doing a wee tour over there, uh, visiting some of our folk in Charlotte, North Carolina. I went up to Winston-Salem, then I was in Franklin, Tennessee, Nashville, then off to All Swings, Mississippi, and back to our old friends in Memphis. Uh, but it was good to be in the USA, and hi there to our USA listeners. Uh, we hope to get some portable equipment, so maybe next time I'm across the pond, we'll be able to do some interviews with some of our friends uh, over the USA. Hope you're all escaping coronavirus. Um, things are going a bit crazy here. We've had a couple of appointments cancelled this morning, but... My afternoon appointment is here, and I would like to introduce you to our very special guest today, who is uh, an old friend, Fred Drummond. Fred is the Scottish Director of the Evangelical Alliance, and he also serves as the UK Prayer Director. Well, good afternoon. It's lovely to be here and uh, looking forward to an exciting conversation. Yeah, well, uh, it's always exciting with you, Fred, because yeah, <laughs> you, you're all, you're, you always strike me as being positive. Are you positive by nature? Uh, I am, actually, which I'm told is, is quite uh, different for somebody from Fife. Uh, but I, I usually am because uh, I, I think we're called to be hope-filled people. Uh-huh. And um, particularly the moment almost everywhere you look in the world, there's a sense of hopelessness and fragmentation. And part of our witness as following Jesus is to actually demonstrate the hope that we have rather than just believe in hope. So, um, yeah, I believe that God is able to transform any situation and uh, any people and try and keep that sort of lens whatever I'm involved in. Great. Were you a hopeful person before you were a Christian? What I'm trying to say is, is it just part of your personality or did God give you a little bit of extra optimism? Oh, I think God gave me extra optimism. I think I was a cantankerous wee fifer, really. Is and, there any uh, other kind? Well, I'm not sure. I think I um, keep kept balanced by having a chip on either shoulder um, and uh, could be pretty miserable and, and cynical, I think. Yeah. I think one of the things of... Um, Becoming a Christian was to be less cynical about people and people's motives, though that's not always easy to maintain. Yeah, when you say that, I think of a Proclaimers song uh, about victimhood, you know, and there's that great line, I think I'll sue my parents because I was brought up in Fife. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, that's a possibility. (laughs) So I I encourage you to to read it. Tell us a wee bit of your story, uh, Fred. How how you became a follower of Jesus? Well, it's quite an unusual one, actually. I became a follower of Jesus without any contact from church. So um, my dad died when I was um, mid-teens, um, sudden heart attack before he was 50. Mm. And I left school at uh, at 16, didn't uh, do any O grades at that time or standards as they are now. I went to work in Resize Dockyard as an apprentice and uh one uh, night when I was in doing backshift, and at that point when we were in the dockyard, used to find try and find a place to sleep. And uh, I found this uh, little house, this uh, wee hut at the far end in the dockyard. And there sitting on the table was the book Run, Baby, Run by Nicky Cruz. Um, I didn't know it was a Christian book or I probably wouldn't have touched it. Uh, but it had a, a switchblade at somebody's chest on the front cover. And didn't have anything to do, and uh, started to read it, and and the story of it gripped me, 
and he says one or two things about uh, Jesus' power to transform life. And um, there was an old Bible of my grand's uh, still in the house, and I started to read it. And uh, one night beside my bed, asked uh, Jesus, if you are real and love me enough to die for me, I want you to come into my life. I want to follow you. And uh, radically knew almost instantaneously that something had changed for me. Right. Doesn't Isn't that the miraculous? You know, that out of something almost from nowhere, you'd know Christian uh, influence or no certainly biblical Christian influence and no. you come across that book you probably got an old authorised version and you plough through it and yet God spoke to you through that Yes, I mean God's uh, providence and care are um, phenomenal things really and even after that I, I found that um, my dad used to go to a, a hairdresser <laughs> and um, uh, the, the barber as a uh, as I found out after I became a Christian, just a few weeks uh, later, uh, told me that he'd been praying for our family since my dad had died. He was a Christian. And uh, every Thursday night after that, for about almost two years, I would uh, go down to Gordon's house for tea. And then his wife would go into the sitting room and we'd stay in the kitchen. And I don't know if you remember, you used to get a one-volume um Matthew Henry's commentary of the whole Bible. I don't know if you still get it, but it was a huge book. And uh, we started at the beginning of Mark and we'd read a chapter every Thursday and we would uh, ask questions about it. And whatever we didn't know, he would go turn to Matthew Henry's commentary, which actually never answered any of the questions that we had, but we always used to look at that. And he basically taught me to pray, uh, got me into devotional pattern and, and essentially discipled me until I went to Bible college. That's really what we call these days mentoring and one-to-one discipleship. Yes, I'm very passionate about mentoring. I, I think that uh, every church should be looking around its congregation and asking who who is mentoring who here. And what um, folk are not receptive to that? How would you try and win them over? I think it has to become a value of a congregation. It's something that has to be taught and, and lived out, really. And I think uh, sometimes in our gathered worship, we don't give enough space to hear from one another. And I think there needs to be space where we can talk about common issues and Isn't values. Isn't interesting, you know, we're in the New Testament, you know, it, there's that verse about psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Mm. But notice what it says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Yes. So isn't that interesting that the New Testament church seemed to have more of a sharing the scriptures, the word with one another? Yes, no, I think that's right. I think one of the um, professionalizations of of the church, in a sense, is, has distanced staff and leadership from the laity in, in sometimes quite unhelpful ways. Uh, and... Um, that we need to find ways of engaging more fully, I think, particularly as um, our faith and our communities are moving from centre to margin within the Western world, as as we see particularly in, in Scotland, I think, but there are other places as well. Um, the space to ask real questions, um, to share real doubts and concerns, uh, I think, 
a lot of Christians are actually living uh, with guilt that they feel as though they haven't stood up for things in the staff room or they haven't wanted to feel out in a limb and so they haven't said and then they've gone away from that feeling you know really quite low about their faith and um actually an avenue where we encourage people and support people and talk through what are the real issues of following Jesus today in a secularized world um I, i'm not convinced that we are preparing people to live for jesus in the places in which jesus sends them as well as we might right we'll return to to these themes in a wee minute i want to go right back to this uh, time that you picked up the book a, a kind of buzzword that christians use is testimony testimony is really just telling our story now, it's quite a contrast there. You've got the run, baby, run, Nicky Cruz <clears throat> came in a kind of David Wilkerson crossing the switchblade genre. Uh, the Mau Mau Gangs, wasn't it, in, in New York? Yes, Dramatic right. stuff. Um, as had, Nicky Cruz's conversion was really dramatic. You, however, are not Nicky Cruz. You're living a kind of quiet life in Fife. Um, you know, I don't think you were murdering your granny or, you know, sniffing coke or anything like that. It was a fairly normal life, I assume. Yes. So, so, so you've got a, a quiet life and a dramatic life. Do you think that sometimes we put a bigger value on the dramatic conversion rather than in maybe the more gentle one? Both are miraculous. Yes. Yes, I think we do. I, I think... Um, we always have done, really, as as church. We've uh, liked the impact of people who who have that clear transformational uh, piece from a, a fairly difficult, hard, and sometimes um, almost evil life into the transformative power of the gospel. Um, and that is a, a miraculous thing. I, I'm not sure how well it it touches down in, into real life. I mean, uh, I guess I was a little bit somewhere in between. It certainly wasn't uh, at that age. We we lived in um, in a flat in a housing scheme uh, in Dunfermline, a place called Abbey View when uh, when I grew up. But Sounds I think, very posh. <laughs> yes, it definitely wasn't. Um, but I, I think one of the dangers of the church today is that um, Christian community longs for heroes. And so almost anybody, you know, who uh, plays in the Premier League and is baptised uh, is lifted up uh, as something uh, almost more significant than somebody who's been brought up in the church and comes to faith and is baptised. Or um, So that uh, celebrity culture, which is all round about us, uh, is there in the church as well. We have celebrity we preachers have celebrity as well, celebrity preachers, we? yeah, worship leaders, uh, the same people at the same conferences. Uh, and so the roundabout goes, and, and I'm sure we've both heard the same jokes and same uh, stories from the same speakers. Listen, different some of them we've told the same jokes <laughs> and the same stories. That's true. Yeah. Now, one of the things I really admire about you, Fred, is that you you are the director, Scottish director of Evangelical Alliance. You are one of the few people in Scotland that can really just bring people together. Uh, you know folk throughout the tribes of evangelicalism and beyond. Do you, do you enjoy that? Do you find it difficult or does it come easy to you? 
Um, I think it probably is a bit of a trial at the end of the day on all these sort of uh, personality profile things that you get. I am just almost dead, nothing between introvert and extrovert. Um, so I, I, I love um, hearing people's stories about what God is doing. I love a vision and, uh, and prayer. Wherever you find wherever that. Wherever I and, find and it. Whatever oh, one of the sections or tribes, as we call them, that you find it, yeah. Yes, and, and I've always believed, I think because my next step from my testimony quite quickly in some ways um, was to go to, to what was BTI at the time uh, in Glasgow, Bible College in Glasgow, where I was thrown into the deep end of being a Christian for about two years, probably. And somebody, a, a man called Jeff Grogan, who's the principal at the time, saw um, some potential uh, in me and uh, um, took me under his wing a little bit. But I was thrown into a college where there was almost every, um, a whole range of theological evangelical thought. And finding that actually I got on well and learned from pretty much everybody in it. Now, some folk might say that that's complete lack of discernment and theological training. Um, but actually, I, I think that um, Christ chooses to reveal something of himself through all sorts of types of people and uh, and shades of theological uh, perspective. And um, so trying to hear and build relationships. And, and I think in the growing fragmentation in which we find ourselves, one of the key kingdom value things uh, has to be our unity in Christ. It has to be our John 17 moments. It, it has to be saying that while we will not agree on everything, um, normally within the evangelical world, not exclusively, but normally within the evangelical world, the things that should unite us are stronger than the things that we that we differ on. And that when we do differ, we have to find ways of differing well yes. because it models something that the world does not have. The world wants to, in the main... It, differ badly it, it likes enemies it makes enemies through twitter and social media or or uh, disdaining comments um we in christ have to be better than that as a church so i'm not saying we shouldn't be challenging one another uh, and i'm not not saying that we need to agree with one another but, I, but, but you can disagree. You can disagree respectfully, can't you? I mean, I, I even find that with folk of other faith groups. Um, you know, I, I have no problem sitting down with my Muslim friends and my Buddhist friends and having an honest discussion. And I find that if you treat people with respect, you can often elicit, you know, the truth from them. In other words, what I maybe think someone thinks, you sit down and think, oh, no, they don't really think that at all. Yes. And there's greater communication. You may not agree, but you've got a clarity about what they think. Yeah, and I think that's so important because we live in an instant world, don't we? So we we see something on TV or we hear something on a Sunday or we, uh, we see somebody has spoken at this conference and we don't like that conference. So our first response is to go on to Twitter. Um, and uh, have a go at this person or, or that person. And uh, I've always tried to work by, if I know 
somebody that I disagree with that I know uh, well, I'll actually pick up the phone and meet them for a coffee mm-hmm. and, and see people face to face and uh, and see if at least we can agree and pray together mm-hmm. at the end. And we may still, you know, part totally uh, disagreeing about that position. But you made a friend. Point. But yes, well, hopefully. And, and uh, more than that, I think we, you know, when two or three are gathered, Jesus is in the in the midst of us. So there is there is something um, special. There is something unique when brothers and sisters come together and and dwell in unity and seek unity, uh, but not for unity's sake, but for the sake of the gospel and and for the sake of Christ. And, uh, yeah. Again, we'll we'll come back to that, but I I want to tease out a little bit. I know that you're really interested in, and you've spoken about this many times, it's a phrase that the church moves from the centre to the margins. I think increasingly we're in the margins Good or bad? A bit of both, I think. Um, People point us back to the early church and say, you know, look at how the early church grew uh, in the margins, which is uh, completely right in the whole uh, pre-Christendom movement and and what that looked like. Of course, um, we're in a totally different situation from that because we, we have had all these generations of time when we have been influential and our story has shaped education and shaped thinking and, and shaped debate. And and so and we haven't started, if you like, in the margins. <laughs> We've been forced into the margins by a rejection of our story. And um, and so that's a difficult place for us. And I, I think there are, are maybe three responses to it. W- one is uh, to pretend it's not happening and to carry on just doing things as we've always done them which I don't think is tenable, actually, today. Or there's a response which is, well, we'll try and be so like the culture round about us that they will still treat us well and and we won't feel like we're marginalised. Or there is, I think, the chance to say, so what is it that makes us who we are? What What is our identity in every circumstance and situation who are we in Christ and what does it mean for us to live a radically different culture my um, frustration sometimes is that we talk a lot about changing the culture that we're in or changing you know the cultures that we're in really but actually I feel that what we really need to do is we need to think a little bit more about actually what is what is the culture of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. What, what is the culture of the way in which the church should always have been living? And spend more time thinking and, and trying to live that. Because I think if we were living more faithfully to the Sermon on the Mount, if we were radically and well, John lavish... John Stott's phrase, Christian counterculture, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And the sweet spot that I'm constantly wrestling with in mission in the Free Church of Scotland and through all the generation platforms is how do we connect to the culture and yet be faithful to the word? And, you know, there's not a day goes by that I'm not wrestling with these issues. Mm-hmm. And, and very hard, and I think all um, missiological thinking people, that is the, the issue, isn't it? We have to understand the times, almost yes. sons of Issachar kind of thing. We have to understand the times in which we have been 
placed because we've been placed here in the sovereignty of God. Um, but we're not called to take on the cultures in which we find ourselves, yes. to understand them, um, but to live differently in them. And and I think it is a huge challenge and huge pressure, particularly for um, next generations of, of young folks, you know, uh, being a Christian in a fourth or fifth or sixth year at school or uh, standing up for the Christian narrative in a university setting. Um, I don't think we have experienced that as a, as a community, that uh, pressure to conform, that secularist drive, right. that equality things in such a way Um as people are having to face now. Right. And that goes back to my, so how are we um, in the church equipping people um, with an apologetic and a gospel understanding that enables them to be competent as Christians right. in the world? To raise a, an issue of the moment in Scotland, and that's where we're broadcasting from just now, uh, some of our listeners may know that Franklin Graham was due to speak to SECC. It's a big convention centre in Glasgow. And the owners of SEC um, said that that could not happen. Destiny, it's a, an Edinburgh church here. They were using the Usher Hall. And again, a similar thing happened because the views of the speakers didn't agree with what they deemed to be an equality policy or they felt, you know, a public reaction. Now, you know uh, we may not, or I may not agree with Franklin Graham. I think what he says in the political sphere is unwise and unhelpful. You know, I've got questions about, you know, certain elements of his salary, his compensation package, uh, various things. You know, there's, there's big questions. But that's, let's put that to the side. This idea of no platforming, I may not agree with someone, but do you know, I think as Christians, we should fight or stand up for the right of free speech. So, Fred, have you got some thoughts on this no-platform issue just now that's going on in Scotland? I do, actually. I think there are several issues that we almost have to untangle, though they overlap. I think there's the issue of tolerance. And in Scotland, tolerance is an ever-increasing word. We want to be a, a hugely tolerant society. You know, everybody should be free to live whatever life they want and we should be tolerant of it. But we find as, as Christians more and more that tolerance has boundaries. <laughs> and if you're not within certain boundaries, then, then society is not tolerant of you. <laughs> so you can find yourself... Uh, lacking tolerance from the wider society if you hold particular views. And um, I think that is mostly around an objective view of right and wrong and what sin is. Um, sin is the word that has essentially been abolished from our culture. Um, so when I talk about our, our story, our, our narrative of there is a right and wrong, there is a big picture, there is a place for you, there is the fall, all of these things are now totally rejected by our society. And to hold these views marks you as outside of what we might call social orthodoxy. Yes. And if you're outside of social orthodoxy, those who control tolerance have no tolerance for you. 
And I think that will be an increasing thing. Mm-hmm. There, there is uh, religious liberty. And uh, what rights do we have in order to say what we want to say? And say it in love and say it with grace, but hold on to truth. And where's the place for that? And I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation over the next two, years. So should we engage the authorities like the Usher Hall and SECC? Yes, I think we should. Uh, I think particularly on religious liberty and on equality things, and particularly the Usher Hall issue, which I I think um, has been badly thought out by the people who run the Usher Hall, which essentially is Edinburgh City Council. Uh, I don't think, in my own view, that they have been equal. I don't think if... There was a a speaker who came to the Edinburgh Festival who was known to be offensive to Christians, um, that their uh, concert would be pulled because their language was offensive to a group. So there is no equality Mm -hmm. there. And and I think that is something to be uh, challenged quite strongly. The other concern, I I think, just in a general point, is that any society that is frightened of ideas and opinions that it disagrees with is is doomed to failure, it seems to me. And um, while Christians are not by any means the only people who have been no-platformed, whether you're Amber Rudd, whether you're uh, somebody trying to speak at a... Oxford University, whether you're trying to uh, be offered a role at a university as Jordan Peterson was and then find it uh, withdrawn from you. There is an ever-growing trend that if you're thought of having views that are slightly different or challenging of the perceived norm, then we don't have to listen to you and we we are rejecting your right to say what you think, and that, to me, is a very dangerous thing. Okay. Moving on to other issues, we're talking about the local church. Again, your passion for mission and evangelism. Can you maybe outline what you think the marks would be of a local church which is missional in outlook? Again, I'm assuming irrespective of denomination, whether it's Baptist, Presbyterian, independent, charismatic, whatever, I kind of feel that whatever the flavour or brand is, that many churches that are missional share the same characteristics. Can you outline for our listeners what you think these characteristics would be? Yes, certainly. So if if I, if I broke it down into the, the gathered and the scattered, um, I think at the heart of, of the gathered community, when we're uh, drawing together, um, we are uh, listening to one another. We are bringing the concerns of all of us. And so equipping us all in that worship space to reimagine the possibilities of what God is able to do in the beyond. So we're always focusing beyond our building. There's always questions about um, non-Christians. How how does this relate to non-Christians? What does this look like? How much time are we spending praying for those round about us? I um, love going to churches. My own church does this every Friday morning, is 
going out and praying round the mile or so around our building, praying for the businesses, for the schools, for the, for the streets. So part of our gathered spirituality is still strongly influenced by the incarnation and by the um, development of the advancing of the kingdom of God where we are. Okay. And, I'll yep. stop you there and sure. I'll, I'll return to other things. You mentioned a couple of times, and I think that's a good emphasis of sharing with one another. Is there still a place for the trained pastor teacher who has been trained to rightly divide the word of truth? Is there a place for that? Um, yes, there is. Uh, I, absolutely. I um I've always believed strongly in expository teaching uh, at the heart of So where does the pastor the teacher fit in and a sermon talk, call it what you like, with yes. the sharing? Well, I, I strongly believe that there is a whole range of giftedness with, within the church. There is an, an apostolic voice. There is a prophetic voice. Um, we could define what they are if, if you want me to. That's for uh, another podcast. Uh, there is. There's an evangelistic voice. And I think a church that's working well has within its leadership, to a greater or lesser degree, all of these. So uh, the, the uh, pastor, teacher, who's predominantly somebody inward facing he, he they are or he is somebody who is teaching the flock and pastoring the flock so that's an internal in church house if you like thing but actually that needs flavored by the evangelist or or by somebody who's saying well this is great teaching but actually, we need to get people out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and they need to work in harmony together. So there has to be space for the other gifts that God gives um, that helps shape alongside the word. We should right. never lose the centrality of the word. I'm absolutely committed to the authority of Scripture. Sure. We, we need to be probably more well-taught today than ever in our past, I, I believe, but we have to have people who also understand culture, mission, how the gospel works, how you connect the gospel, how you do apologetics, how you share your own story, uh, all of these things. And quite often, the one person who's doing the preaching model is not that person. So we need to be... Um, but would you not agree that a pastor-teacher is not exclusively just expounding the word to believers, but within that, the preacher is to do the work of an evangelist. So there are some generalists. Am I hearing then that you are saying that you don't think there's a space anymore for evangelistic preaching? Uh, No, I, I, I think there is a space for evangelistic preaching. I guess what I'm saying is that um, there are people within almost every congregation in Scotland who have untapped gifts, who are uh, engaging with non-Christian people, um, perhaps at the hundred times greater level. Because than, than the pastor teacher. teacher is maybe speaking, you know, I don't know, the average size of a Scottish church would be 70 or 80. Some are bigger, some are smaller. Yes. So it's, um, what I'm hearing is that the pastor teacher is teaching that flock. Uh, he's also evan- preaching evangelistically. However, his words 
are only going to these 70 or 80. But the 70 or 80, as they are multipliers, yes. are essentially reaching hundreds. Yes. Well, uh, a secondary school teacher in one day will speak to more non-Christian people than some pastor teachers will speak to in a year of preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's just the facts, isn't but, it? Yeah, but his job is to prepare God's people for works of service. Yes, uh, absolutely. But he... he um, or she is is not <laughs> the another podcast. <laughs> uh, is not the um, is not the sole arbiter of everything that Jesus does through that people yes. of God. Yes, and there there will be other voices being used by God to help shape the thinking of the congregation. It doesn't undermine the actual teaching of Scripture. But actually, you need other voices to say, here are some of the key issues that we're dealing with day to day. Here are things we learn from other places or other people. Here are some of the things that God may be doing in other parts of the world that we need to be aware of. And and therefore, you then, both you instill confidence that other people outside of paid staff actually matter. Um, within yes. the community of faith. Um, but secondly, you're recognising that there is a whole range of gifts within the people of God. And and I, I really think as we are declining in number, which we certainly are in Scotland. Uh, Ten in churches church, closing every month, I'm yeah, told. Yeah. So uh, if, if that is the, the case, then we need to be... Um, encouraging, supporting, and identifying the gifts within the different people in the congregation. And um, I think then the staff's role, um, normally in Scotland that is just a one-person ministry, but but in some places more than that. The staff's role then becomes, I think, a, a teaching safety net. So it, it teaches scripture and helps walk with the person and, and is there as a safety net and security as the person takes steps of faith out into the world again. It is almost, I think, the Jesus sending the 70 okay. uh, out and then bringing them back and listening to to what they did and how they did it um, and reflecting and then teaching back into them again. I suppose a wee concern I have is, you know, there's a book called The Death of Expertise and it's the idea that someone who's theologically trained, in in the case of our our circles, uh, I'm speaking from the buildings of Edinburgh Theological Seminary, familiar with original languages, Hebrew and Greek, familiar with hermeneutics, familiar with all sorts of stuff, that... You know, we Jimmy off the street has as much right to speak as an ordained, trained pastor. Mm. Um, I mean, comment on that. Well, in one sense, uh, well, that's right, because, you know, uh, God has spoken through a donkey in the past. And okay. some people would say continues to do that <laughs> uh, in the right. present. Um, but if if you mean consistently teaching a people of God, then absolutely we need we need to be educated and continually lifelong being educated and being as um devoted to learning. Yes. Um so that we've always got something to share with people. So I have a high regard for education. I've been in it in one form or another for quite a long time. Uh, and I'm certainly not dumbing down the the need 
for people to be taught well by people who know what they're actually talking about. Yet. Uh, it's always a good start. <laughs> it's a good start. But we Jimmy's got his role. I mean, I'm, I'm not using no, no, it in a disparaging sense, but Jimmy is going to places that the reverend cannot go. And, and that's where I think that the miracle of the body of Christ is, that, that we, are, we have different gifts and different callings. Um, and someone who is called to teach the word um, of truth has to do the best they can to know that word as well as they can. And so I would say if, if you feel as though uh, you have some sort of Bible teaching passion, then you need to be going to Bible college. Then you, then you need to be developing uh, these gifts in exactly the same way if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I, th- I think I'm an, an evangelist. Right. You know, uh, I would want them to go and meet other evangelists and, and go and understand what the gospel is and go and study and learn and grow so that whatever they're doing for Christ, they're doing it to the very best of their ability. It's certainly not anti-expertise right. because we, we need that. I think my only, um, sometimes as I, as I travel, I, I come across both extremes. I, I certainly come across people and and you listen to them speak and they speak with great uh, passion, um, but with sometimes not all that much understanding. Yes. So the text becomes just a pretext for the idea that they've yeah. already got. Um, I sometimes go to people who have have great understanding of the text, um, but no understanding of the world in which we're living. Sure. There's no bridge. There, there is yeah. no bridge. So so they, they can expound the text well, but there is nowhere for people to go with it. Okay. And so you then have a mass of congregations who are thrown back out yeah. into the workplace on a Monday yeah. and they're yeah. not any better prepared than they were so on this we're Saturday. going back to the missional church model we've already established okay you've got a pastor teacher knows what he's talking about uh, teaching the people of God every member ministry everybody involved the outward focus and you've given the example there of praying for the community everything in the church is always asking the question but what about the non-believer? What about the sceptic? Any, yes. any other marks of a missional congregation? I think, yes, uh, risk-taking. I, I think, um, you know, holding on to things a little uh, less tightly than than uh, churches that you might call more maintenance model churches. I think that's... Can you uh, give uh, any examples? Would you be bold enough to give any examples <laughs> of that? Well, when we... Uh, this would be another podcast, but um, when, when we uh, closed down our city centre church to uh, start a church called Perth Riverside Church, which uh, came under the uh, 2000s. It was a replant in a It sense, was a replant with it? a yeah. much smaller group of people without a building, yeah. uh, moving into school and using the manse and other houses and so on. Um, we, we uh, I, I had some interesting letters for a couple of years right. fr- from people who'd always sat in the same pew, had right down to um, people spending an enormous amount of, Time deciding who would get the Guild China, right? And things Guild China has caused more disruptions in the church than any other issue. I have never seen anything like it. But um, and so there, I understand that when everything was changing round about people, the one thing they felt certain of was that the church would not change. Yeah, my my challenge was to them was that God will not change. 
but the form in which we do church might have to change because the form in which you did church in Jerusalem was clearly different to the form in which you did church in Ephesus. Would would you not agree that there would be core elements? I mean, it's what the old folk used to call the ordinary means of grace. So there would be the opening up of the word, there would be prayer, there would be the sacraments rightfully, you know, distributed in baptism and and, uh, the Lord's Supper in whatever form we, we saw that. So there's these core elements. Yes. But preaching is done in different ways. Prayer is done in different ways. The sacraments are done in, in different ways. But there's these core elements. As a misnomer, the ordinary means are actually extraordinary. There's nothing ordinary about it. No, them. no. Absolutely right. So I, uh, about three years ago, or whenever I wrote What Kind of Church, which was actually to say that, what, what are... The, the values, if you like, that, that are what make us who we are and, and the praxis that is based upon these, um, recognising that they will look differently in different cultural settings. But if they are not there, you would have to question whether the church is the church anymore. And um, I, I was trying to create a discussion primarily amongst laity um, who were asking at various events that I was at, you know, what happens if we can't afford to pay for a, a minister or staff member anymore? What happens if there's 40 of us in a building that holds a 1,000 people? You know, what, what would, it, would we still be church if we didn't yes. have these things and so on? And so I, I looked really um, primarily at the end of Acts chapter 2 because, you know, the first natural response as were recorded uh, uh, by um, Luke is, is this is what the church did, you know, before there were apparently elders or whatever. Here's, here's um, in five verses, really, some of the things that the church prompted by the Spirit actually did. Mm-hmm. And the first one is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So the first thing said about the gathered congregation of the people of God was they were devoted to the teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of John's tests in First John. There's a doctrinal test. Yes. Do you know what you're talking about? Yes. There's a social test. Do you love one another? Yes. It's a moral test. What's your attitude towards sin? These are, you know, foundational, unchanging things. Absolutely. There's, uh, in my mind, there, there was, uh, there was leadership. It was the apostles who were performing uh, miraculous signs. Uh, there was uh, an overwhelming um, sense of sacrificial giving. Seeing those who were in need, they sold their possessions and gave. Um, so, so they were anti-consumerist in in that sense. Uh, they met in one another's homes, so there was a, a huge degree of hospitality, of of kind of openness and so on. And you can go through these five verses, I think, and you can pick out six or seven value things yeah. or or practice things that are flow from values that I think come directly from Jesus' yeah. ministry amongst the disciples. Yeah. I mean, your what kind of church stuff is very interesting and certainly it would provoke a lot of discussion. Where can you access that material? Uh, all of it is on the Evangelical Alliance's website uh, now. Uh, we did we started with the, the booklet, which, as I say, was... Um, was trying to create a conversation um, and then the films came after and then we were asked to create some small group resources just to give people a few questions to reflect upon. So they're all up there somewhere. Right. So on, on churches the are welcome to use that. You've got no 
uh, copyright on it. Uh, well, I suppose it's a copyright, but churches are supposed to are encouraged to use Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Now, yes. you're working on something else just now. You, you did your what kind of church? What are you doing just now? Yes, uh, I'm looking at what kind of follower, and uh, that really came out of conversations and emails around the church stuff. And it, it's primarily talking about um, how do you follow the radical saviour in a secularist world? What are the challenges to following? What are the, uh, what are the things that encourage you to follow? Uh, what is the cost involved? What is restoration? What does the call of Christ actually mean? Uh, how do you live differently in the face of all of these things? And again, it, it's aimed at, at laity. We're, we're told that not only um, are, are churches declining, but there's a mass of people in the Western world, one of the growing groups in the Western world, if you like, of people who see themselves as actually belonging to Jesus. They, they recognize they have had a spiritual encounter uh, with Jesus, but they have now departed from the church. They don't see the church as, as significant to their spirituality. Okay. That's and I, a I problem, want to challenge it? that. It yes. is. I because if your God that. is your father, you really need to have a church as, as your mother. But presumably the way to challenge people of that is not to do what I'm doing just now, kind of just going in there quite aggressively. How, <laughs> how, what would you say to someone who says, Fred, I love Jesus, but poor, the church is, is a problem to me? Yeah, I would, uh, I would say to them that the church is a group of uh, wounded, failing saints. And that quite often we think in our minds when we when we join the community that it is full of of perfect sanctified people, and actually, if you were to reflect upon some of the miracles of the church in mm. terms of the the diversity of people, the little signs of grace and mercy the the words of encouragement, the things that are actually happening, you would see that the miracle uh, that is the church has transformative power in God. But actually, you need to widen your lens of it. You need to, one, recognize that, to recognize that you have a contribution to play, that the body is not functioning as the body while you're not part so of it. So become part of the solution, not part of the problem. Absolutely. But I think thirdly, and we need to hold our hands up as church sometimes, we, we haven't always been great with people who have had a different view or who have fallen or um, who have had questions that make us uncomfortable. We have shunned people in some congregations. And so we, we sometimes, I think, almost go beyond saying, oh, get over yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have to recognise that people have had genuine hearts and uh, walk with them and enable them to try and see the church and through the eyes the of Christ. to apologise and even to use a bigger word than apologise, to repent sometimes of the way we've treated people. Absolutely, yes. Fred, we, uh, this is a, a little bit longer than a usual podcast. You have been so interesting. 
Lots to talk about. Oh, I'd love you. to get you back and we'll, <laughs> we could talk about uh, complementarianism versus egalitarianism. <laughs> brother, wouldn't that be a great discussion? Yes. Gifts of the Spirit, that would be a great discussion. Baptism, that'd be, we, might, we might even solve a 2,000-year-old baptism question <laughs> be, be, between the two of us. You've been a great guest and you are a wonderful gift to the church in Scotland, Fred, and, and thank you so much for all that you do. Thanks for being with us today. David, it's been a great privilege. Thank you.